Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are regular short episodes where my co-host, Paul Bishop, or I get to hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast campfire and spend some time talking with friends and writers who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is best-selling author Johnny Boggs. Johnny D. Boggs has worked cattle, been bucked off horses, breaking two ribs last time, shot rapids in a canoe, hiked across mountains and deserts, traipsed around ghost towns, and spent hours poring over microfilm and library archives, all in the name of finding a good story. He has won a record eight Spur Awards from Western Writers of America, a Western Heritage Wrangler Award from the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, and has been called by Booklist Magazine among the best Western writers at work today. He also writes for numerous magazines including True West, Wild West, Boy's Life, and Western Art and Architecture. Speaks and lectures often, studies old movies, westerns, and film noir, and even finds time to coach Little League. A native of South Carolina and former newspaper journalist, he lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with his wife and son. His website is www.johnnydboggs.com. During this odd baseball season, we've both been watching pre-recorded matchups to get our fix of America's Greatest Pastime, so I'm glad we found time between games to chat. Howdy, Johnny. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Very good. Hey, I got a kick out of the opening sentences to your bio, which mentions broken ribs and shooting the rapids. So a Hemingway vibe there. Can you give us a look into how those experiences translate into your fiction? I've certainly put the broken ribs horseback riding in quite a few novels. And the the rapids, I don't believe I've had anybody shoot rapids yet, but that, that made its way into some magazine work. It was shooting down through the Rio Grande Gorge in northern New Mexico. And my companion said it was just going to be a float trip. And he lied. I said that the rapids were actually probably maybe class two were the, the biggest we hit. But the takeout was like lugging a 40-foot canoe up switchbacks. I said, class two rapids, class six takeout. (laughs) Right. I suspect that exploring ghost towns and that sort of thing has made its way into a novel or two. Sure. Westerns are all primarily about landscape. If it's Western art or Western literature, Western film, the landscape has a lot to do with it. So if you go to the places that you're writing about, and you can't always do that, but if you can, you do get to see exactly what the people 100 years ago or 50 years ago or wherever, how they had to deal with the land. I was actually doing a Western art story for True West Magazine. I was talking to somebody about what happens after the pandemic is over with Western art. And he says, the landscape never changes. And I said, well, there's a lot of truth to that. It might change a little bit. You can see where some miners have taken away mountains and things like that. And rivers obviously change courses. But yeah, the landscape is pretty much the same. You've written a lot about baseball. Camp Ford is one of my favorite your books you've written. Thank you. Where does writing baseball come from for you? Were you a sports writer at the newspaper? Most of my career was in sports. I started out as a sports reporter in Dallas at the late, now dearly departed Dallas Times-Herald, and then I went to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I started out as a sports writer and moved over to the copy desk, and I was assistant sports editor in charge of the night operation at both papers. Most of my journalism career was, was in sports. I was a terrible, terrible baseball player as a kid, but I certainly followed the game enough to know something about it. When my son was born and he started to play baseball, uh, I was told, well, you have to coach him. So I started coaching the Little League from T-ball to coach pitch to instructional league and on into the competitive league when they got to their teens. It's fun and it's frustrating and I love the sport. 
Mark Twain once wrote about the similarities between the American West and baseball. I agree with that. And I know my publishers probably sometimes say, oh, my, no, 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 please, please, please don't write a baseball Western. Please just put a cowboy or something in there. But I didn't always follow those instructions. I know that in our correspondence, you shared with me that you recently have written some nonfiction. You wrote The American West on Film, which looks at 12 post-Civil War movies or movies that are set in post-Civil War America. But it's more than just another filmography. There's some editorializing on America and history. ABC called me. It was was cold call. They had asked another Western historian to do the book, and he said he didn't have time, but the person you really need to talk to is Johnny Boggs. So they called me. And I had written filmographies about the movies about Billy the Kid and the movies about Jesse James. So when he called and said what he was doing, I said, yeah, I can do that. But what they wanted to do was take a look at how Hollywood history compares to actual Western history. History. And we shot for 12 movies. I think I wound up doing 11. And the, usually they just want a 10 for this series. It's called Hollywood History. So we open up. It gives away the plot of the entire movie. And then we go to how the movie came to be made. And then the history of the person, the event, general idea of the movie. And then we go to comparing the movie's version of history against what really happened or what is believed to have happened. And then how the movie stands up and its place in film history today. It was uh, fairly intensive research to get all of that and then combine it into 7,000 words or 8,000 words per chapter. But it was, it was a whole lot of fun yeah. to research. It's all, I'm always amazed. As I say it's a miracle any movie ever gets made. So we did Little Big Man for the Battle of the Little Big Horn, Union Pacific from 1939 for the Transcontinental Railroad, Young Guns for Billy the Kid, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford for Jesse James and Outlaws, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And, and those are fairly easy enough to work on and figure out the actual history because they're based on real events. It was when we got to movies like High Noon for oh, yeah. Towns and Lawmen and The Magnificent Seven for the Gunfighter Culture that it got a little bit strange. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet. (laughs) That sounds terrific, though. They just asked me to do one on sports on film. I actually said, why don't we do baseball? And they said, eh, baseball is too limited. Let's do sports. But I did get two baseball movies in that one. The Jackie Robinson story from 1950 where Jackie plays himself and A League of Their Own, which they demanded for the women's play during World War II in baseball. I did throw in Junior Bonner for Rodeo, so I've got a Western in that one, too. Oh, good. You've also scheduled to write a nonfiction book on Red River. Yeah. University of New Mexico Press is launching a new series called Real West, R-E-E-L. And it's just looking at the making and the impact of Red River. And they sought me out for that one because I did the novel Return to Red River, which was a sequel to Borden Chase's novel that became the movie Red River. How did that come about? How did you get a chance to write that sequel? Gary Goldstein, who is editor at Kensington Books, he called me up and said, what would you think about writing a sequel to Red River? Borden Chase's novel, not the film. There are significant differences. The movie isn't quite the same as the book or novel or short story that's actually based on. And I said, I shouldn't have to remind you, Gary, but there is a thing called copyright. He says he believed that the book had fallen out of copyright, the novel, which was something like Blazing Guns on the Chisholm Trail, typical 1940s title. But I said, okay, I can do that. And I sent him an outline for a plot. And he said, that's great. 
now he had to turn it over to the legal department. And they did all the research they could and came to the conclusion that the book was out of copyright, so it was fair game. And so I just went with it. I reread Chase's novel several times, but I did not intentionally did not look at the movie when I was writing the book just because I didn't want to be influenced by that. And by those actors. Right. So how many novels have you published? I'm always asked that question, and one of these days I'm going to remember to go look. I think it's about 60. I think I just hit the 60 mark. And people ask you, how can you do that? And I say, it's a mortgage, and now it's a kid about to start college. (laughs) You've got a new novel out from Kensington soon in the fall, too, right? Yeah, another cattle drive novel. It's called A Thousand Texas Longhorns. I actually just sent the edited manuscript back, so it should come out, I think, in November is what they're shooting for. It's based on Nelson Story's 1866 cattle drive, which he took from Texas to Virginia City, Montana. It was one of the two cattle drives that Larry McMurtry used as a basis for Lonesome Dove. Ah, okay. We'll look forward to that. Let's talk a minute about Western Writers of America. You've won eight Spur Awards from the organization, but I know you've also been involved with the group in a variety of ways. If somebody out there is thinking about saddling up with WWA, can you share some of the benefits you've seen to writers over the years? I honestly believe I don't have the career I have now without Western Writers of America. I made the connections, made the friends. I had had a few novels sold and published before I joined WWA. My first convention was 97, and I expected maybe I'll make some friends and make some connection and learn a lot. And I haven't missed a convention since, and I certainly made the friends. Maybe didn't realize how deep of the friends I would make, but you're in with your own crowd. These are people that are writing about the West. They're in the same boat that you are. And publishing, it's always a rocking, violently topsy-turvy boat. But it's a great organization, and it really helps people that want to write about the American West. And it's not just fiction. There are poets. There are uh, songwriters. There are screenwriters. There are nonfiction writers. And it's not just 1860 to 1890. It's prehistory to today. That's one of the things I try to tell publishers. They don't always listen to me. Is The West didn't end in 1900. I go to the grocery store, chances are I'm going to run into a working cowboy in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live. People are still fighting for the same thing. It's about land, and it's about race, and it's about borders and everything. I always roll my eyes when somebody publishes a novel or somebody makes a movie called The Last Cowboy. Uh, No, (laughs) no, (laughs) not happening. Right, right, right. I was amazed at the convention in 2016 when we were there for the first time and the sheer number of projects that are going on in all the variety of ways that you mentioned, the music and the poetry and sitting there at the Spur Awards and seeing some of the contemporary Western novels that are being written. The one thing that really amazed me about Western Writers of America, the first time I went to a convention, I was actually paid to go there for a magazine to interview the late, great Elmer Kelton. Pretty good gig. You're getting paid to interview probably the most iconic Western writer of our time. And then I met Lauren D. Esselman. And what really amazes me every time I go to one of these conventions is actually, by all rights, as competitive as the market is, especially for Western, especially for Western fiction, we should hate each other's guts. <laughs> We should be like, you know, <laughs> Kansas City Royals and New York Yankees. Uh, but everybody's very helpful. That the beauty of the organization is they're all willing to help. You ask them a question and they'll give you an honest answer. That's the vibe I got, too, was that if somebody gets a publishing contractor and says they've got a new book coming out, everybody else knows how tough that is and says, hey, that's great. Because we all know. We all know. Right. It's an achievement. 
So with the pandemic going on and everything up in the air, what are some of the events that you hope you can be promoting this fall? I was supposed to give a writer's workshop here in Santa Fe, and I just got word today that they were obviously canceling. These are a difficult time, but people are still writing and publishers are still publishing books. So that's going on. But as far as marketing, I think it's going to be a very tough times until this thing's all over. Yeah, I agree. We'll just have to wait and see what happens with everything. People are still reading. That's the good thing. I can tell by the clock on the wall that our time is about up. So thanks for visiting with us today at the Six Gun Justice podcast, Johnny. Thank you. We wish you the best in the future, and we'll be looking forward to some of those books we've talked about. Thanks to Johnny Boggs for hanging out and chatting today. You can learn more about him at his website, www.johnnydboggs.com, and follow him on Facebook and Twitter. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.